My name is Keith Beavers, and in the autumn, I found out a squirrel's brain and intellect increases 15% to gather acorns and stuff for winter. Mine too. What's going on, wine lovers from the Vine Pair Podcasting Network? This is the Wine 101 Podcast. My name is Keith Beavers. I am the tasting director of Vine Pair. It's true. It's true. Okay, we're today we're gonna get down in, with yeast. I know we talk about it a lot in this podcast, but what is yeast? What does it do? What do these little dudes and dudettes get up to there in the vat? That was really stupid. Anyway. We're going to get down and dirty with, no, not even dirty, we're just going to do yeast. This episode of Wine 101 is sponsored by Talbot Vineyards. No matter what your evening has in store, it could be a game night or a decadent four-course meal, Talbot's 2019 Sleepy Hollow Vineyard Pinot Noir makes the perfect addition. It's got dark cherry notes on the nose, a soft, plush mouthfeel, and exudes those classic Pinot Noir characteristics that we all know and love. So, if we didn't have yeast, we wouldn't have wine. We wouldn't have beer. We wouldn't have bread. Would we have spirits? I don't know. It's not that kind of podcast. Anyway, yeast is the most important. Well, it's not the, but you know, it's like one of the, if not the, one of the most important constituents in the wine making process. I mean, Maybe it's the most important. Anyway, I want to talk about yeast because we talk about it a lot on this podcast. You hear about it all the time out there in the wine world. But what is this? What is this thing? How does it work? Where did it come from? Why does it do what it does? Let's get into it. When it comes down to it, like brass tacks, a yeast is a single-celled organism that when starved of oxygen transforms grape juice into wine with sugar as its energy source within that environment producing ethanol, alcohol, and carbon dioxide, wine. And we know about the fermentation process because you listen to Wine 101. You understand that in the fermentation realm, there is warmth and what's interesting about that is the name or the word yeast was originally derived from an ancient word meaning to boil or to seethe or to be troubled. I guess if you're in boiling water, you're in trouble. That makes sense. By the time we get to 16th century English language, it was then referred to the actual froth on top of a brewing tank. And the kind of semi-solid, moist-like material you could scrape off of that froth and also the stuff that fell to the bottom of the tank. But from the mid-17th century on, a bunch of scientists decided, you know, this word is going to be used for a single-celled plant that they called a thalophyte. This little single-celled organism was derived from an ancestral yeast and over many like duplications, rearrangements, and deletions of structure and the, the makeup of this cell, think Prometheus, if you guys watch Aliens, like the opening scene, 
that dude's the ancestral yeast. Just saying. And it's thought, we're going way back in time here, but it's, it's actually thought that as plants evolved and the availability of sugar began to diversify under flowering plants, so did the yeast evolve and diversify. What all this really complicated science stuff I'm saying and blah, 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 blah means is that because of this, the genetic and phenotypic, which means the actual physical makeup of the cell, the diversity is immense, especially within the yeast species that is used for wine, beer, and bread, Saccharomyces cerevisiae. I believe I'm pronouncing that correctly. I might not be. Conveniently, the word Saccharomyces means, quote, sugar fungus. That makes sense. It eats sugar. The word cerevisiae is derived from the root of the word cereals. And from what I understand, that word was initially given to this particular yeast back in the day before it was fully understood, but I guess they must have known it was a bread-making yeast because of the cereal connection. That's my theory. But within the Saccharomyces cerevisiae species of yeast, there are several hundred different strains, and each of these strains act somewhat differently. And for wine purposes, different strains have different, slightly different reactions to the fermentation process, where it can actually hinder or increase the vigor of fermentation. It can help or hinder the, the off flavors that come out of fermentation. They can affect the uh, ester production. Esters are uh, compounds that give us the fresh, fruity nature of a wine, like the aromas. It can also enhance the varietal's actual character that you experience in the resulting wine. There are other species being used. For example, there's one called Saccharomyces uvarum, which is used in cooler climates. But I just wanted to mention that because it's used in like the northern part of Italy and France and New Zealand, but I don't want to like drill down too much on that because Saccharomyces cerevisiae, our sugar fungus cereal yeast, is the main squeeze of the wine industry. Now, that's yeast. And when you're out there in the world these days, there is a lot of talk about two different ways of applying yeast to the winemaking process. There is what is called cultured yeast or inoculated yeast. And there's another term called ambient or wild yeast. So let's talk about those two things and give you an idea of what's going on when people talk, when people say these words. There's a term out there um, in France and other places in the old world where they call it, well, in France, they'll call it a chateau population of ambient yeast or a resident population or indigenous population of ambient yeast. And what this means is it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a low population of wild yeasts that are very sensitive to sulfur dioxide, but are intolerant of alcohol up to about 5%. These 
this little small population of yeasts are working in tandem with our main squeeze, Saccharomyces cerevisiae. So basically what's happening here is you have yeast being brought in by insects, mainly fruit flies, the wind. You're, they're attached to transportation equipment, harvesting equipment. All of this makes its way into the must. And a lower population of yeast begins this fermentation process only to be continued by the Saccharomyces cerevisiae depleting the sugar to the point where we have wine. And if everything happens just as it's supposed to happen, the wine will be stable. Any kind of mix-up in that process, that natural process, can make an unstable wine. That's why you have this term chateau resident indigenous. There are wineries that have a population of yeasts that they believe are important to the character of their wines. They, they don't need inoculated or cultured yeast because these, this population, they can trust that this happens all the time, but it doesn't always cause nature's crazy. So there's, this is where cultured yeast comes into play. I like, so I like the way the Oxford Wine Companion says it. Wine, quote, wine is commonly the result of a mixed microflora. This is old school. This is how wine's been being made since wine has been being made, stomped under feet over in the Levant in the Bronze Age. Now, what if you don't want that kind of risk? What if you're like, you know what? Modern science is awesome. And I know that if I buy a certain cultured yeast, I know that my fermentation will start at this time. It'll produce, it'll, you know, consume this much amount of sugar. It'll produce this kind of new wine that I can then work with within my style. And I don't have to worry about stuck fermentation, which is something that does happen when you have ambient wild yeast cultures. The old world of wine is known mostly for their ambient yeast. They've, you know, they've clung to it for quite some time, but there's an increasing amount of winemakers in the modern era that even though they're organic or sustainable, they still want to use yeast that are risk averse. In the new world, culture yeast is what we do. There's a smaller population of winemakers that are actually trying their wild ambient yeast, but cultured yeast is sort of like how wine is made in the new world. Although the, the drive for a resident yeast population, ambient yeast population is very popular and will increase, I think in the future, just a little crystal ball thing I'm looking at. I don't know. Today, there are well over 100 strains worldwide that can be used in dry yeast preparations, meaning you're adding the yeast to the must. And you really can't deny the stability of this cultured yeast idea in that they've been specifically selected from ambient yeasts, from these sort of wild yeast populations, so that its behavior is isolated and predictable. So they didn't come out of the ether. They're actually drawn from an actual population. It's almost like mass selection in a vineyard when you're trying to find the right clone. And this ensures that fermentation will happen smoothly and you will not get stuck fermentation. That's what it guarantees. 
And what's really even wild, it's just, this, this gets wild because winemakers, if you have over 100 strains of Saccharomyces cerevisiae to choose from with different advantages, I mean, that's insane. If you have a winemaker who's like, I want this one. Why? Why do you want that one? Well, there's a whole list of, I mean, it's a long list. I'll just give you a couple things of what these winemakers can look for. It's basically like, what kind of strain do you want for what, what, what do you want to do? Do you want, do you want that fermentation vigor I was talking about before? Do you want a yeast that is, has a high tolerance to temperature, a high tolerance to high alcohol or sulfur dioxide? Do you want a specific yeast that develops wine in a way that's beneficial to sparkling wine? Do you want a yeast that allows you the freedom of not having to worry about volatile acid or any of the off flavors that sulfur brings into the mix? Do you want to enhance the varietal character? Do you want to enhance the fruity nature of the esters? Do you want to really enrich your red wine color in your resulting wine? Are you worried about the lack of nitrogen in your, in your process or potassium? There are yeasts that can deal with that. And also we talked about malolactic fermentation. There are yeasts that are more compatible with lactic acid bacteria. All of these things go into those 100, over 100 strains and a winemaker can, you know, choose what they want. Now you bring a cultured yeast into the mix, the wild and the ambient yeast are still going to do their thing, but their job is not as important because the cultured yeast is not a mixed flora, but one yeast ready to do one job and do it well. And I'm not a winemaker, but when you're researching this stuff, it kind of comes down to just winemakers and what they want to do. Like, do you want to do the ambient yeast, the wild yeast thing? Do you have a, a history of your microflora, like doing what you want it to do? Then that's great. And you keep it. Or do you buy cultured yeast to enter into the mixed flora of your environment so that one day that could be the dominant yeast in your mixture so that you may one day not have to use cultured yeast? Whoa. But no matter whether the winemaker is using a resident population of ambient yeast or a cultured yeast, how do these single-celled organisms actually work? Okay, I really find this extremely fascinating, so just bear with me. I'm going to get really far down onto the molecular level. So a yeast cell needs a supply of certain things so that it can grow and reproduce. And must has mostly all of that stuff. Carbon and nitrogen, a source of sulfur, phosphorus, and oxygen. With a bunch of minerals and micronutrients like vitamins and all this stuff, it has all of that in the must ready for the yeast to consume and grow. In particular, those carbon sources we've talked about in previous episodes, a couple episodes ago, sucrose that breaks down onto fructose and glucose, yeast loves that stuff. Now you'll notice I mentioned oxygen. Oxygen is used in the beginning of the process, but immediately after that, oxygen is like restricted. No, you cannot come in. This is not your space. We need this yeast to do its job and the lack of O2. That when we starve, remember we said in the beginning, we starve this thing with oxygen, it starts to produce wine. Okay, buckle up. The yeast using internal enzymes and a bunch of reactions I don't understand, splits the six-carbon sugar molecule, which is the, the fructose, sucrose, 
glucose we talked about into two molecules of what's called three carbon pyruvate. It's called pyruvic acid and it's a little bit intense, but what's important about this is this state is called a fermentative decomposition. And what happens here is, okay, I love this. The first step is during this fermentation process, this is basically what fermentation is, is it removes a what's called a terminal carbon dioxide from the pyruvic acid. That's carbon dioxide, CO2. That's what goes through the juice and releases into the air or eventually goes into the fruit into the juice during a second fermentation in sparkling wine. And if pyruvic acid is a three carbon thing and one carbon has been taken away in the form of CO2, what's left is a two carbon acetaldehyde. And that acetaldehyde is then converted in this fermentative state into ethanol and more CO2. This is the literal molecular process of yeast eating sugar and converting it to ethanol and carbon dioxide. I know you're probably confused. I think it's pretty awesome. I hope you guys think so too. Now, during this process, a small amount of that acetaldehyde does get converted into what's called acetic acid, which we talked about before, which then contributes to the volatile acidity of wine. Whoa. This is also the time when esters are being produced by the yeast, which are those fruity aromas that you get in the resulting wine. And here's a little contribution to what might be a flaw sometimes in wine is when the sugar is actually all fermented to alcohol and there's a, or CO2 and there's, you know, CO2 just blows off and there's a small amount of oxygen left over. The yeast can actually convert that ethanol, now called ethyl, ethyl, (laughs) back to acetaldehyde. And as we know from the Wine 101 podcast, acetaldehyde is a main ingredient in vinegar. So this is a result when you get a wine, it's like, ooh, it's a little vinegary, and I just popped it. That's weird. Because during the fermentation process, some alcohol, some oxygen got in, and it was reconverted back to acetaldehyde. If any of that is confusing to you, just go ahead to season one, I think episode one or two, and I talk about how wine is made and go into all that acetaldehyde stuff. So after all the sugar has been consumed, fermented, the yeast then begins to deprave itself of being able to basically respire and it dies and becomes what is called a lee or if it's a bunch of them, gross lees. Now, there's an actual yeast that can survive all this called Britannomyces. And that does the same thing as Saccharomyces. I know I've talked about this before, but since we're in the yeast episode, let's get into it. Is that if there is any residual sugar left over, remember from our residual sugar episode, the Britannomyces then eats whatever sugar is left over. It, start, it begins to convert what are called the unstable venophenols to a stable ethophenol, which are the compounds responsible for medicinal, band-aid, barnyard, mouse aromas. So instead of giving like passion fruit and guava and grapefruit or blueberry, you get these that mask what the beneficial yeast has done. And in the heady days of the natural wine movement, a lot of wines that had majority Britannomyces results were on the market. Today, it's not as prevalent. We're having more and more wines that don't have this Britannomyces result. But I will say 
that Britannomyces has been around just as long as any other yeast. And there are places in the world and there are winemakers out there that have made wine where the products of Britannomyces have been part of the complexity or the aroma profile of a wine. Because if you think about it, if Britannomyces doesn't get its way and just eats through everything, the work of the beneficial yeast is still sound. And the minimalist products of the Britannomyces is just there in the smallest, smallest parts per billion to actually add that slight little earthy kind of aroma to a otherwise stable fruit forward wine. If there is a Britannomyces infection, then that means that yeast has taken over the entire process and all the work that's been done is for naught because the products of that Britannomyces have outweighed the work of the beneficial yeast. That's how that stuff works. Okay. That's yeast, guys. I was try. I just wanted to get to that that one part with the molecules. I was really excited about that. Anyway, that's just an overall about yeast, and I hope you know a little bit more. So when you're talking out there, you got all the information about sucrose and fructose and breaking down and all that cool stuff. So I'm gonna stop now. Let's talk next week. Vine Pear Keith is my Insta. Rate and review this podcast wherever you get your podcasts from. It really helps get the word out there. And now for some totally awesome credits. Wine 101 was produced, recorded, and edited by yours truly, Keith Beavers, at the Vine Pear headquarters in New York City. I want to give a big old shout out to co-founders Adam Teeter and Josh Mallon for creating Vine Pear. And I mean, big shout out to Danielle Grinberg, the art director of Vine Pear, for creating the most awesome logo for this podcast. Also, Darby Seaside for the theme song. Listen to this. And I want to thank the entire Vine Pear staff for helping me learn something new every day. See you next week. Ian J. Gallo Winery is excited to sponsor this episode of Vine Pairs Wine 101. Gallo always welcomes new friends to wine with an amazing wide spectrum of favorites ranging from everyday to luxury and sparkling wine. Gallo also makes award-winning spirits, but this is a wine podcast. Whether you are new to wine or an aficionado, Gallo welcomes you to wine. Visit thebarrelroom.com today to find your next favorite, where shipping is available.